Well, undoubtedly, you took a car to get here because not many of you, there's only one family, I think, that walks. And as you drove in, I don't know how much traffic you encountered, but you may have noticed people disregarding traffic laws. Maybe not on Sunday morning, maybe not as many on Sunday morning, but you know that it happens, right? So stop signs turn into yield signs. You know, reds can go green, amazingly. Um, Speed limits become speed suggestions. Now, it's not really, most of the time, it's not really all that harmful. Most of the time, in God's grace, your life doesn't get changed by the fact that you disregard those laws. But think about what happens when someone turns a stop sign into a yield and because they didn't do that they didn't see the pedestrian that was just beginning to cross they hit the pedestrian and kill them your life is forever changed right you will likely be charged with involuntary manslaughter and could spend quite a bit of time in prison all because you disregarded a simple sign that you didn't think was all that important now that's on the human level But think about what we do to God's laws found in his word. How often do we just simply disregard them? Or how often do we think, oh, they're just, it's not, that part's just not really all that important. All the while you see, you don't see the the unforeseen damage that it does. What do you think is the most disregarded command of God? Probably do not have any, do not worship any other God besides me, right? Probably idolatry is what I would guess. But um, certainly you would have to throw in there the commands, do not lust, do not commit murder, do not lie. Only God knows really which one is the most disregarded. What do you think is the most disregarded command of God amongst Christians, amongst those who call themselves Christians and, and may genuinely be Christians? Right? What do you think is the most disregarded command? I don't know. I didn't do a scientific poll. But my guess would be the instructions in Matthew 18 where the Lord gives us instructions on what is known as discipline, corrective discipline, or what's known as church discipline. But see, the Lord Jesus has, as the head of the church and as our Savior and God, as we've sung, has given us instructions on how to, how to reconcile with one another how to resolve conflict, and how to deal with sin amongst our families and the family of God in the church. And these are instructions that we must follow if we're going to truly love God and love each other, love our neighbors, love those in your family. But often, many churches, and indeed many Christians, just simply blow the stop sign, if you will, of Matthew 18. They disregard it. And so my goal this morning is to help us to see that this is mandated territory. That it's, that it's required that we obey the Lord's instructions in Matthew 18. If we're going to glorify him, love him, and love each other, and have a healthy church. These things must be done. Well, before we get into really dig into it, let's just read the text together. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew 18. And I'm going to read verses 15 to 17. But this morning, I'm going to, I'm going to pl- split, split this message really into two parts. 
And, and we're really just, we're not even going to get out of verse 15 because I really need to make some things clear and press home some things in our lives. And then next week we'll look at verses uh, 16 through 17. So let me read that. Matthew 18, beginning at verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you. So that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Again, these are the Lord's instructions. These are the Lord's mandates. This is not optional territory. Jesus didn't introduce this by saying, well, if you feel like it, do this. These are commands. These are imperatives. And they are highly disregarded by Christians today. So let the Lord's word speak to you in your life this morning. So we must pursue reconciliation. That's not an option. That is a command. The first thing I want to point out this morning is that pursuing reconciliation is your responsibility. And I say your, each individual believer. Each individual person has a responsibility to pursue reconciliation. The whole process begins on the individual level. Does it begin on the collective level? So it's not just the church leadership that, that initiate this. It is not the church in a collective sense. It is you individually. Notice verse 15. Now, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother. It is your responsibility. I want to be very clear with this. It is your responsibility to go to that person. Right? You're the brother who sins. And all through this, the text uses brothers, so that's what I'll, I'll stay with. But it's brothers or sisters. This applies to any Christian. If, if, if you uh, see your brother sinning, you are to go and show him his fault. Even if the sin is against you. Even if the sin is against you. Matthew 18.15 addresses the responsibility of the individual follower of Christ. And, and again, I'll just emphasize that Jesus is speaking individually, not collectively. How, how do we know that? Right? Well, there's a couple things in this verse I want to point out. First of all, the, the verbs that he, is, uh, that he uses, that, that Jesus uses, are ones that are imperatives. They're the second person singular imperative. He's speaking to you. He's not speaking in a collective sense. And that's a little bit hidden in the English but it's clear in, in Greek. He's, he's speaking individually. This is an individual command. If you, uh, individual Christian, if you, Bob, or, or you, Jim, or you, Stan, whatever you, who, you just th- put, put your name in there. This is to you. And the other thing is that in this passage, the other, um, I guess, uh, Detail that shows us that this is to individuals is the fact that he says you. This is not the collective you all that Paul often uses in his letters. Right? This, this is you individual. This is speaking on an individual basis. And another way that we know that, even if you missed that, let's say you didn't know Greek and you just read the English. Right? That's okay. 
But look what it look what it says in verse 15. He says, go show him his fault in what? Private. Well, it can't be private if there's a group. Right. So it, it requires the context requires this to be an individual action. You are to go and to reconcile them, reconcile with him. Now, I'm going to go I'm gonna, in, in a moment. I will I will show us what it means to go and show him his fault. For now, I just want to press home the point that you are that you are responsible for pursuing reconciliation. And you, I read from the New American Standard Bible, but you might have a New King James or an HC, um, HCSB or, or another version that, that actually inserts if your brother sins against you. So there's a little phrase against you. So depending on your Bible translation, you may have that. And that's because the Greek text actually is in question about whether Jesus actually said against you or not. So it's a legitimate debate. Um, it doesn't change the fact that you are still responsible. And in fact, we know from other passages of Scripture that it's not just conditioned upon your brother sinning against you. So certainly if your brother sins against you, you have a responsibility to go to them. Right? But if we just do a, a cross-check, like with a, a, a passage is very similar in Luke 17. Luke 17, verses 3 and 4, uh, read this way. Be on your guard... If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. There's no question there. There's no debate about whether it's the sin is against you or not. So basically it is you seeing a brother or sister of Christ sin. And you see that it's now your responsibility to go to, go to them. And in Luke 17.3, the Holy Spirit kind of presses, presses home the fact that this is to be done on a repeated basis. There's no excuse for saying, oh, I already forgave him and he sinned again. He did it again. Because in verse in Luke 17, 4, it says, if he sins against you seven times a day and he comes back and repents seven times, you are to forgive him. Seven times a day. Now, does that really mean seven times? Well, I think Jesus is speaking in kind of a, in a, 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 an emphasized fashion to say that no matter how many times he sins against you, if the person comes back to you and repents, you are to forgive. Right? So uh, the, 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 what I wanted to point out is that God puts a high priority on reconciled relationships. That's true within the body of Christ, but also think about your own family. These things apply in your own family as as well, as brothers and sisters, as husbands and wives, as Parents and children, as you relate to one another, these things apply. God puts a high priority on the unity of a local church. And, and I would say on the unity of a family that wants to honor and glorify him and living their lives to, to glorify Christ. And one reason that we can say that such a high priority, we read it in Matthew 5 earlier, but I'll just read it to you again. Matthew 5, verses 23 and 24 say, say this. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. So Jesus envisions a, a scenario which an Israelite coming to worship the Lord God is bringing his sacrifice to the temple and in the process, he remembers that his brother has something against him. It's not that this person has sinned against a person, may or may not have, but he remembers that that person has something against him. God says, 
stop, leave the, the offering there, go be reconciled to your brother, and then come back and offer the offering. So, in other words, Jesus is saying that worship of God is not acceptable when you know that there's an unreconciled relationship with your brother that needs to be dealt with. God says, stop your worship because your worship of me isn't going to mean so much when you have this broken relationship with a brother or sister. Go deal with that relationship, then come back and worship me. That's, a, that's what a high priority God has on reconciling relationships. God prioritizes reconciliation over worship. Now, he wants worship, and he, he is rightfully deserves worship. But understand that, that he doesn't want your worship when you've got this unreconciled relationship that you're just kind of ignoring and not dealing with. He, he sees that as, a, as some level of hypocrisy because you haven't obeyed him. And if you haven't obeyed him and you're off bringing some kind of sacrifice, He's seeing that as duplicitous. So he's saying, no, go deal with that and then come back and worship me in, in spirit and in truth, meaning with your heart. So understand that God doesn't give us options. If we see a brother, sister in sin, we are to go to them. And, and sometimes you can't reconcile. And, and we'll talk about some of that later. But you are to go make that attempt. You are to pursue reconciliation. As Paul says in Romans twelve eighteen, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Right? So you do everything you can do in good conscience to pursue reconciliation and that will honor God. Right? That's what he expects from you. So if you have, a, uh, you have, if you have been offended or um, you've been sinned against or you realize that, that somebody seems to have something against you, maybe you don't know exactly, but the way they're treating you makes you think that that they, uh, that they have something against you, you need to go to that person. You need to initiate reconciliation. Now, someone might say, well, if, if, if so-and-so, let's say Bob, right, sins against me, why do I have to be the one to initiate that reconciliation? Why can't I just sit back? I mean, he's the one that sinned against me to start with. Why can't I just sit back and wait for him to realize his foolish behavior and how he has sinned against me? Well, the first reason is that God tells you not to, so it's disobedience. Secondly, Bob may not have known that he, known that he sinned against you, right? So that's another reason. And a third reason, Bob may be compounding his sin by refusing to come to you. You ever been in those situations where you know you should go ask someone to forgive you and you just don't want to do it? So for those reasons, God tells us to go. We don't have the option. Can't, can't just wait. Let me give you a little illustration um, from, from this. And this comes from Jay Adams' book. on his hand, It's called The Handbook of Church Discipline, which is a little bit of a misnomer. It's not just on church discipline. It's on the whole discipline process. And I, I find it to be a very helpful book. So I, I highly recommend it. A Handbook of Church Discipline by Jay Adams. He gives us an illustration of, of why it's important to go to someone, um, you know, when, even when they're the ones that, that have, when they're the one that has offended you. So this little illustration has Mary and Jane. So Mary and Jane have a, have a good relationship, but Jane's been out of town on vacation for a while. And when Jane comes back, Mary sees her in the church service and, and she can't, she can't wait um, to say hello to her after the service. And, at the end of the service, uh, Jane goes to 
uh, sorry, Mary goes to see Jane. She kind of is rushing over to see her on the other side of the church building. When, when Jane kind of sticks her nose up in the air and just starts walking out of the building. And Mary calls to her, Jane, Jane. But Jane just keeps booking right out the door with kind of her nose kind of stuck up in the air. Now, what's Mary going to do? Well, she can respond in two primary ways. If she does what many Christians will do, she'll get offended. And Mary will say, huh, I thought we had a good friendship. But if that's the way that she treats me, we're just done. I don't need friends like that. And she can let it just ruin the friendship. But if Mary understands church discipline and her command to go and reconcile, she will not settle for that. Instead, she will follow Jane out of the church building and go talk to her. And when she does, she says, Jane, what's wrong? I was calling to you, but you just kind of stuck your nose up in the air and kept trucking like I wasn't even there. And she says, I, I, I must tell you that I was greatly hurt by just totally ignoring me. Well, in this fictional episode, Jane responds, Oh, Mary, I'm so sorry. I, I didn't have the faintest idea that, that you were calling me. I, I have a, a, a nasal congestion and my nose started running and the preacher w- preached long and I was afraid that it was going to run all over my face and down onto my dress and my Bible. So my handkerchief was in the car so I just bolted out to, my, to the car to deal with the nose. And, and, and of course, the two ladies reconcile. Now, now, Jay Adams says it is a fictional account. But he says that he's seen friendships devastated by over 20 years for things just as silly as that example that he made up. Isn't that crazy? So if someone is, has offended you or seems to ignore you, right, they may not even know that they're doing that. Right? So you need to go to them. And you need to work that, work that out. Seek that reconciliation. And I, would, I just want, we just need to recognize that there are, there are practical benefits of what I'll call corrective discipline. And, and Jay Adams in his book does a good job of highlighting the fact that discipline is, is not just corrective. That's the part that we kind of focus on when you hear discipline. You just think about really the negative aspect. But there's a whole positive aspect of discipline as well. And I'll, I'll try to mention some of those uh, next week. But discipline is meant to train us in righteousness. And it's only when we fail to exercise self-discipline that corrective discipline needs to needs to happen and jay adams also points out that the one of the reasons that discipline is needed is for our instruction right so when there's not discipline chaos ensues and in the midst of chaos you you can't have any kind of instruction like so it's one of the reasons why our school systems are such a mess today because we've lost any kind of corrective discipline and therefore instructive discipline is just kind of a washout so you can't have one without the other. God knows that, and even in the church. Right? So there are practical benefits of corrective discipline. In light of the fact that there are benefits, the benefits are you, you can learn and you can grow and re- relationships are restored. But in, in light of these practical benefits, why are there so many people who claim to be Christians? You know, we're not looking at the world out there. We're looking at in-house why are so many Christians and churches 
that claim to love Jesus totally disregarding his word in Matthew 18. I mean, Matthew 18 should be something that is practiced in every family, every church that names the name of Christ. And yet it is rare. In fact, I never saw church discipline enacted until I went out to Grace Community Church where John MacArthur pastors. And I actually saw it in action. Right? So a lot of times church discipline, you don't see parts of it. They're private parts of it. But I never saw it in action. And it wasn't because people in other churches are more holy or more righteous than people at Grace Community Church. It was the people at Grace Community Church made a commitment to actually carry out the Lord's commandments. Why is it so common for churches and Christians to fail to obey the Lord's instructions in Matthew 18? Why is that? Well, they don't connect the fact that a failure to disobey that is a failure to love God and it's a failure to love their men. And that's what I want you to see. That obeying Matthew 18 allows you to love God and allows you to love men. If you fail to obey Matthew 18, the instructions we're looking at today, you will fail to love God right? in, in that you're disobeying him, and you'll also fail to love your neighbor. Right? Those are the two greatest commandments right? by our Lord. He, he lays that out. Now, let's just probe a little bit. Why is it that people, that people fail to obey God? Right? Why is it that they fail to love him by obeying his commandments in Matthew 18. And let's put these in kind of three categories. Number one, ignorance of his command. They just might not be known, might not know. And that's how it is in a lot of churches. Matthew 18 is, is not taught. It's not demonstrated. It's not modeled. It's not practiced. And so you have a lot of Christians that are just completely ignorant of Matthew 18. Now, is that an excuse? Not really in our day and age. I mean, in the days of the early church, when, when the people didn't have copies of the Word of God in, in their homes that they could read for themselves, they were totally dependent on, on the church, on pastors to proclaim and teach the Word of God. And so if the pastor didn't teach it, people didn't know it. But now that we have the Word of God, we have so much access to the Word of God, that excuse is not going to go very far with our Lord. He's going to say, you had the Word of God. Why, why didn't you read it? And why didn't you study it? Why didn't you know it? So ignorance of God's command. The, the second reason that people kind of disregard the Lord's command is what I'll call indifference. They just, they're just indifferent. They've heard about it. Maybe they haven't seen it modeled, but they're just indifferent towards it. They don't consider it important. It's that person who kind of sees the stop sign, but turns it into a yield, just doesn't think that it's all that important. But here again, there's no excuse for indifference. You know, the Lord sometimes gives us an explanation for his commands. He'll tell us, you know, love one another because your love for one another is one way the world will know that you actually are following me. But there's other times where he just tells us to do something. He doesn't have to give us a reason. If he gives us the command, we just need to do it. And we need to consider it important and not, not stand above the word of God and say, well, that part of the word of God is not very important. So, when people are indifferent to Matthew 18, they're much like that person who just blows through the, the, yields, uh, the stop sign, turn it into a yield. They're drawing their conclusions on Matthew 18 from impartial, I, I'd say partial and incomplete data. They can't see everything. They don't, they don't notice the relationships that are totally wiped out, washed out. 
You know, the, when I was out in California, they had heavy rains. And some of those rains got so heavy, they washed out bridges, they washed out roads. They opened up sinkholes underneath roads and cars fell into them. Right? So when we don't deal with, with these uh, fractured relationships, they tend to wash out those relationships so that it's unsafe. And, and some of those relationships are damaged forever. So there's no excuse for us to be indifferent to this, right? Matthew 18 will help our families function properly, reconcile interfamily relationships and the relationships within the body of Christ. And again, there are, there's one other reason why people disregard Matthew 18 and they, that, that's just defiance, right? And obviously there's no excuse for that. The Lord is gonna hold all of us accountable. Right? If you're a believer in Christ, thank God your sins are paid for, all of them, right? Never will hold those against you. And, and with that, we need to also need to balance that with the fact that the Lord's going to hold us accountable for our actions. There is a, a Bema seat judgment coming. The Lord said he's going to examine everything about our life. And what we do for him will be offered up to him as gold. And what is wood, hay, and stubble will all be burned away. And so the Lord will hold us accountable for, by, for how we act. Rhonda and I visited a church, and I'll keep it generic for for a very reason. It's not this church, right? Because we don't visit you. We, we're here with you, right? You're, we're part of you. So we visited a church once that over a span of several weeks, um, we, we came to see that there were some relational problems within it. Now, it would claim to be a faithful and healthy church. Uh, it, it was a gospel preaching church. But as we got to know people, we became aware of a marriage that was fractured. In fact, the husband and wife were on the road to divorce. And yet, though this was public information within the church, no one was doing anything about it. The pastor hadn't made any attempts. The deacons hadn't made any attempts to help and reconcile them. They, they weren't at all interested in stepping this couple through Matthew 18 either on a personal level or on a public level, they simply refuse to do anything. Which is very sad. As far as I know, the couple got divorced and went on their ways and not a thing was said within the church, though it was public information. Do you think that's a loving thing to do for that couple? It's certainly not. And it's certainly not a loving God. I mean, how can we say we love God if we're not willing to obey all his word. Right? I know it's, it's, diff, it's difficult. None of us are perfect. We all fail in some fashion. But to knowingly not obey God's word. Should, should really grieve our hearts. If you're truly born again. The Lord wants his people to obey his word. And, and of his love. Now, now why do people um, disregard God's word? Why do they not enact Matthew 18? So I've drawn out the logical conclusion that if you fail to obey Matthew 18, you're not loving God and you're not loving people. But none of us set out to do that. No Christian sets out to say, well, I'm not going to love God today or I'm not going to love my neighbor today. It's kind of, we kind of back, enter through the back door of that failure to love God and failure to love others. One of the reasons why we don't enact Matthew 18 is because we hate confrontation. We hate it. 
which is good. It's good that you hate it. Because if you loved it, we, you know, there are different heart issues that you have to deal with there. If you actually loved conflict, right? Um, that's a different failure to love. So no Christian should like confrontation. But we must see that, that going to our brother who sins is required. It's, it's confrontation that is needed for the glory of God and for the good of that person. Why are we so fearful of confrontation? Just probe a little bit deeper here. Why are we so fearful of confrontation? Well, I, I see two significant motivations here. The fear of man and the love of self. Fear of man and the love of self. When we are, f- are afraid to confront someone, one of the two motivations, the primary one being the fear of man. We don't want to be rejected. We're fearful of what they might think about us or what others might think about us. And the fear of man can quickly get a stranglehold on our lives where that becomes the predominating fear that motivates our decisions, what we do or what we don't do. You know, we, we don't want to be disliked. We don't want to be unfriended. We don't want to be canceled. We don't want to be written off. We don't want to be belittled by others around us. So we think more about, you know, the negative ramifications of confronting sin. And so that that kind of holds us back. But remember Jesus' words to kind of counter this. Jesus' words in Luke twelve four, he says, But I say to you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom to fear. Fear the one who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So instead of being motivated by what other people think about us, I'm not saying that's not important, but if we need to not let that be the, the motivator that drives us as to whether we seek reconciliation or not. We need to think about fearing God. Right? What What's more important? Well, who's, whose opinion is more important? God's opinion of you or other people's opinion of you? Right? Jesus makes that very clear. Now, the fear of God is the beginning of understanding and leads us to obey his commands. And another reason that people don't engage or are hesitant to engage in confrontation is love of self. You're just thinking about yourself. I don't like it. Uh, it's uncomfortable. And... You, you just really are thinking all about yourself. So when you choose not to confront, it's not because you love the other person, but because you love yourself. And that self-love will, will kill love for your neighbor. And so we, we need, we need to, to love one another. I mean, there's much that could be said here, but I, I just want to highlight that, that a fear of confrontation is rooted in self-love and fear of man, not a love of neighbor and not a love of God. Now you might be thinking, now, wait a minute. Isn't it unloving to confront someone in their sin? Isn't that an unloving thing to do? I mean, our world right now tells you that if you love me, you'll accept me for who I am. Whatever behavior, you know, just accept me who I am. People identify, their, make their gender, their identity these days. And so they're just like, you know, if, if you're going to love me, you have to love how I identify in gender-wise or how I identify in what I'm, the actions that I'm, that I'm carrying out. And so that, that, that's how our world says. But what does God say to that? You know, our, our culture sends a message like that, but, but God is saying that if you um, 
love one another, you will reach out and help them with their sins. Think about what God says in Proverbs 27, verse 6. There he says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. So you can have people that give you kisses that act like friends, but because they don't tell you the truth, are really enemies. Or you can have someone that says something you don't really like that kind of wounds you, and yet it's a faithful wound because you needed to hear that because an area of your life needed to change. That person's a true friend. So this type of corrective discipline flows out of our Heavenly Father. He treats us this way. Turn for a moment to, to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. In particular, I'm just going to hone in and read verses 7 to 11. And, and you'll see this. Right? You'll see the connection uh, of corrective discipline flows from a God who loves us. Verse 7 of Hebrews 12. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness." All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Just think about that. That without discipline, you and I would not share in God's holiness. Not in a practical sense. So if you believe in Jesus Christ, you You have been born again. You have the Holy Spirit living within you. So you have standing before God that's spotless righteousness. Yet in practice, you fall very short of that. And so God uses discipline. He disciplines us as those he loves. And in fact, God makes the argument here that if God doesn't discipline you, then you're not really his child. You're an illegitimate child. And he uses the earthly example of a father. So if a father doesn't discipline his son, he might think, oh, I'm, I'm a loving father. I let him do whatever they want. And, you know, just I just give them things that they want. And if that kind of father, on an earthly sense, you would say he looks like a loving father, but he's not. The loving father disciplines his children. He trains them. And that earthly example shows us more about the heavenly model. Now, I want you to to keep that idea in mind with the idea that we're told in Ephesians 2.10, right? Ephesians 2.10 reads this way. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. So when God saves you, he gives you his spirit and he prepares ahead of you good works for you to do. And we often think of those good works as like helping our neighbor rebuild or you know, rescuing the neighbor from a fire or helping someone that's just been in an accident. Right? But another good work that God prepares is he prepares you in a certain circumstance providentially to encounter someone's sin. Maybe the sin is directly against you or maybe you're just a witness to the sin. Right? He's put you there providentially to do the good work of corrective discipline. Do you ever think about that? 
that the good work God has prepared for you to do might be going and confronting your brother. And so when you refuse to do it, then you're not walking in those good works that God has prepared. See, God disciplines us. And, and it, many of us would probably accept that discipline um, easier if it were directly from God. But God isn't obligated to use direct means. He often uses indirect means. The indirect means is the body of Christ. We help each other. We, we need each other. I, I don't see all of my sins right, because of the lenses that I look at myself with. You don't see all of your sins. If you're married, you know, you, you know that your spouse sees your sins for, for who, what they are. And that's very helpful. It can be painful sometimes. And the reality hits. But that's good. It helps you to grow. And the same is true within the body of Christ. Right? We need to be going to each other with this first step of, of discipline. Right? Just, just think about God's heart attitude. He loves us. And therefore, he disciplines us. Now go back to Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is a chapter, I would argue, that much of it is about uh, discipline and dealing with, with sin. But before you get to verse 15... You read verses 12 to 14, which kind of set the context. Show us the heart of God here. Let's read those to you. Matthew 18, beginning at verse 12. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of, of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Right? So think about the analogy. Right? He's the good shepherd. Right? So in a sense, the, the church helps shepherd each other. We care for one another. Right? So if there's one that goes astray, the faithful shepherd goes and seeks that one until he is found. And when he's found, the Father in heaven rejoices. So when you help go rescue someone from their sin, that's something that causes God to rejoice. That's, that's his heart. I want to bring in another verse that's very applicable here. James 5, verses 19 and 20. There, James says, My brothers, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the air of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Oftentimes, in the process of church discipline, the person being disciplined realizes they're not even saved to begin with. Right? Uh, it, it just happens frequently. Or people think they're believers, but when they're confronted by the scriptures and they're lovingly confronted by their brother or sister in Christ and they walk through this process, many times it happens where the person actually realizes they're not saved to begin with and they call out to the Lord in that process, repent of their sins and call upon him and are saved. So if you're thinking this morning, boy, I hope I never have to go through this church discipline process. Right? Understand, that's not very realistic. Right? I want to be in a church where if I'm sinning, someone loves me enough to come talk to me. Right? Oh, you're the pastor. Yes, I'm the pastor. But that doesn't mean that I, I have got my life spotless. Right? There's none of us that have arrived. Right? We're all struggling with sin. Right? So understand there are some here to this morning who aren't in christ right where this might seem really odd and you're just like i want nothing to do with this 
But understand that, that God pleads with you. He pleads with you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who died for your sins. And if you believe in him, you believe that he is God, that he paid for your sins, and that he was raised in newness of life, he forgives your sins totally. And, and upon that, causes you to be born again through, the, through his Holy Spirit so that you, can, that you can obey him, that you can walk in obedience, and that you can receive instruction like this from other believers and, and grow therein. A believer, we must realize that our failure to pursue reconciliation is disobedience to God. That's, that's the first and primary point. And, and I want to get more into uh, verse 15. But the second point, we'll get started with this. Pursuing reconciliation starts with you going to your brother or sister. You, you go. And, and what do you do? Again, I'll just read it. Now, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. So verse 15 provides us the first step. You go, and what do you do when you go? Kind of already talked about that. You go, you show him his sin. You, you must show him his fault. What does that mean, show him his fault? That means you go to him and you use the word of God right, and the circumstances of life and you walk him through that to, to bring the evidence of his sin, right? The goal of this is at the end of it that that person would agree with you and say, yes, I agree, this is, this is sin. Right? So that, that, that is what's going on here. So you are going in like a lawyer and you're presenting evidence to that person to convict them of their sin using the word of God, right? Now we have to be careful not to throw our own personal uh, preferences in there. This is actual sin, so the process here requires that you have factual knowledge of sin. It isn't a hunch. It isn't a, you know, a presupposition. It isn't, well, I think he's guilty of sin. This is true knowledge of, of real sin. So if you don't have evidence of sin, but you suspect something is amiss, you still should go, but you can't go with like presenting evidence of a sin because you don't have that. So you've got to go and ask questions. You've got to go and probe and ask, well, why did you do this? Or what were you thinking when you did this? Did you know that this, this hurt my feelings? You just got to go and ask questions. So you've got to guard against hypocritical uh, judgments as well when you go. You, you can't assume that you know someone's motives. Only God knows someone's motives. So unless they tell you their motives, you don't know those. So it's, it's easy for us to assume that we know their motives. But we, we really don't unless they tell us tell tell us uh, their motives. And, and don't add to God's word by putting your own personal preferences or your own personal convictions into laws. Like um, conservative Christians are are famous for that. They come with their own list of, you know, don't smoke, don't dance, and they just add on to that, keep adding on to that. Right? So if you can't point to chapter and verse that it's a sin then you need to go a little more cautiously and you can go ask. Maybe the person is sinning, right? There are sinful types of dancing, right? And you can make a case that smoking is sinful, but there's no chapter and verse. So you got to go a little more finesse. You got to go a little more gently in and talk to the person about that. You should, when you, when you do this, you should confront um, sin. But does this mean that we have to confront every sin? 
Right? So if we see our brother sinning, the Lord tells us to go. Does that mean we have to confront every sin? Right? Well, the text in Matthew doesn't really specify that. But if we did that, life would be a bit difficult, wouldn't it? Right? If you were constantly correcting your child, right? So the children in here, would that be very much fun? If your mom or dad were always correcting you and what you're doing wrong? Or think about it, your spouse. If your spouse was husbands, if your wife was always correcting things you were doing wrong, is that going to be a, lead to a very fruitful relationship? Well, well no. So, so many times, what do we do? We just overlook sin. Right? And the reason we do that is out of love. So we just deal with things that are detrimental to the relationship. We deal with things that are detrimental to the person's life. We deal with things that are detrimental to their relationship with somebody else, their relationship with Christ. Right? So scripture actually supports this. Proverbs 12.10, sorry, 10.12 says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Uh, Proverbs 19.11, a man's insight makes him slow to anger, and it is his honor to overlook a transgression. So scripture says it's an honor to, to be able to overlook it. Just overlook it. 1 Peter 4.8 kind of builds on this and says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. So there Peter's exhorting us, stay hot in your love for one another. You know, the problem with a lot of marriages, why, they, why the little bickering it de devolves into fractures and separation and divorce is because the love isn't kept fervent. If that love is kept fervent, then love can, can overlook so many things. Little things can just be overlooked completely. Now, if you can overlook an, uh, the offense or sin and not let it come between you and that person, then overlook it. Right? How do you know that? How do you know if it's going to, if you can do that or not? Well, you must be very sure that you, you don't allow the offense to impact the relationship. So if you, if you could just keep on building that relationship, you keep on interacting, and that offense or that sin doesn't impact how you think about the person or how you treat the person, then you can overlook it. But if you can't, then you need to go. You can't just say, oh, I'll overlook it and then treat them differently. That's not really overlooking. That's just saying you're going to overlook. But in actions, you're doing something very, very different. So there are times where we can simply overlook. But you have to be careful of your motives. And you also have to be careful of your motives because we don't like confrontation. So we can say that, yeah, I'll just overlook it. But then it really does impact our relationship. You don't call the person as much. You don't greet them as warmly. You kind of avoid them um, when you see them. So that all those kind of behavior, those kind of behaviors is telling you that whatever happened is impacting your relationship and you must go to the person. And I also want to warn you that there are some sins that you might be able to overlook, but you shouldn't. And those are some of the sins that I, I mentioned earlier. If, if, it's, if it's something that is a repeated pattern in the person's life and is impacting relationships, making it difficult for them, making it difficult uh, in their own relationship with God, it could be some kind of enslaving sin, some kind of repetitive sin, or a sin that's potentially hurtful to others. Right? So those are times when you shouldn't overlook. Right? So you need to just pray for wisdom on what to overlook and what, what to deal with. Now, I remember listening to a sermon on biblical reconciliation, and the preacher gave an example of, of why, of, a, a good example of 
when you need to not overlook something. And I just want to relay, relay that to you. A Christian man, we'll call him Jack, loved his wife Susan. And there were times when uh, Jack would tell a, a story that he thought was really funny about Susan. And he liked to tell it, and so he told it, you know, multiple times. Uh, he's probably an older guy, right? He repeats himself. Can't remember. I'm just throwing that out because I'm getting to that stage, right? So, but he told the story and he thought it was really funny. And he laughed hard and he was a, he's the kind of person that he laughs. He, you know, the whole room kind of fills with laughter. But one of his friends, Bob, was in the room when, when Jack was telling the story and, and he happened to look over at Jack's wife, Susan, when he was telling the story. And he noticed that Susan wasn't laughing. And in fact, looked like she had, she kind of grimacing, right? She had a kind of painful expression on her face. So Bob uh, called up Jack and made an appointment to have lunch together. And over lunch, Bob brought up the fact that, that his wife um, looked like she was in pain when he was telling that story. And as you might predict, Jack got defensive. And he's like, no, she loves that story, right? She loves it every time I tell the story. So Bob challenged him to go home and ask his wife what she really thinks about that story. Again, Jack was not happy with the confrontation that, that Bob brought and is kind of an unhappy ending to the lunch. But um, during the day, uh, Jack's conscience got the better of him and he became convinced he needed to ask his wife. So he got home, and they're having dinner together. He asks his wife, Susan. Um, he says, that story I, I tell about you, right? You, you enjoy me telling that, don't you? And she, she couldn't really answer. And he's like, Bob said, it, Bob said it hurt you. Does it hurt you? And it was a story that, that really made her look kind of silly and, and foolish. And she admitted to him that it really, she hated the story because how it embarrassed her every time he told the story. And he's like, well, why didn't you tell me that you hated it? And she responded by saying, well, because I know how much joy you get from telling the story and I didn't want to ruin your fun. Wow. What love that woman had for her husband, right? That's incredible love. So, Jack was crushed by how inconsiderate he was of his wife. Asked for her forgiveness and then went back to Bob and asked for his forgiveness and thanked him for loving him enough to show him his sin. That's a true story. So that's why sometimes you can't overlook it. Bob could have overlooked it. Didn't really impact him too much. But he loved Jack. He loved Susan enough to tenderly, gently intervene to help them. You must go. And you go and show them their sin. And sometimes you have to just give them time. You go and show them. Like Bob did with Jack. He, he brought the evidence. Jack didn't believe it. And you just kind of like leave it with them. And let the Holy Spirit. You pray for them. You let the Holy Spirit do his work of bringing the inner conviction of sin. And changing the heart. Right? So you don't change instantly. I don't change instantly. So when you go. You go and present evidence. And you just leave it with the Lord. And you give give person time to think about it you give the holy spirit time to work on that person's life 
But it's important that you go privately. We see that's another important point from Matthew eighteen fifteen. You go privately. Right? So you go talk to the person in private, which means you may need to select your, or you do need to select your timing very wisely. You're not to gossip. gossip. You're not to slander the person. You're not to talk to your best friend about the person. If you need wisdom on like, well, what do I say and, and how do I interact? What scriptures do I use? Well, then you can go seek help from a pastor or from another person who's mature in the faith, but do so in a way that, that so generalizes the information that I or anybody else can't guess who it is. Right? I don't, I don't want to know. I do want to help you walk in, in obedience, but I don't want to know the details of who that person is, right? Because it should be private. Right? And you don't want to gossip. You know, if you're, going, you're doing this because you love them, because you want to honor God. So go privately. And you go with the idea that restoration is the goal. You're going to win them over, right? Not win them over to your side, but win them over to the Lord's side. Win them over to truth. So the purpose of reconciliation is, is not to beat the person down, but to build them up. It's, it's, you're on a mission not to seek and destroy, but to seek and restore. So when you see your brother sinning, your brother sins, go to him, show him his sins, and if he repents, you forgive. You forgive him. Remember again what Luke 17, 3 and 4 says, Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times a day, saying, I repent, forgive him. We are to be forgiving people. So Matthew eighteen fifteen gives you a responsibility to initiate the process of reconciliation whenever you see a brother or sister in sin. They sin in a way that's it's not possible or not appropriate to overlook, even if that sin's not against you. Right? And we do this of love for God and love for the other person. Beloved, you must commit yourself to the Lord's instructions here. It's so easy to disobey this. It's just so easy. That's the pattern of our society. It's the pattern of our churches. It's the pattern you've seen modeled in, in the churches you've come from. We must commit ourselves to love God and love each other enough to go have that conversation. Right? You know, you, you have it lovingly. You, 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 when you go, you pray. You go prayerfully. You go tenderly. You go gently. You know, it's, it's, you're going out of love, not out of condemnation. Think about how you would respond if, if when someone comes to you, they just come with, with you know, they're both barrels loaded and they're just shooting at you and they, you feel like they're an enemy, right, and not a friend. Right? So it, go in grace. Take the things we've learned about with walking the Spirit, Walking according to the truth, walking in love, go with humility, control your tongue, control your anger. All these things factor in to making this a fruitful event for you and for the person that you're going towards. Let's not be like the generic Christian church today who just disregards Matthew 18. Let's not be that nominal Christian who just completely disregards Matthew 18. Let's be real Christians right? who apply Matthew 18 for the, for the good of each other and for the glory of our God. Right? And we can, we can sit back and watch the Lord work in restoring relationships and protecting relationships. 
is every relationship restored? No. I don't want to paint kind of a mis, uh, a characterization that's not true. Every, every relationship isn't restored, right? but many are restored by God's grace and his working in our lives. We need to commit ourselves to do this. Right? If we don't go to our a loved one and confront them with their sin, who will? Right? You're, you're the person God's placed there to do that work. Right? So go, cooperate with God. And if the person repents, rejoice. You've won your brother. Right? And God's rejoicing in, in what uh, has happened in that event, you going and the person repenting, God rejoices in all of that. What happens if the person doesn't listen? Well, that we'll look at next week. Okay? Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you for giving us your word that's, that's clear. It's not complicated. It's not convoluted. It is difficult. And Lord, we just confess the many times we should have confronted sin when we did not. Perhaps there were times we should have overlooked sin and did not. Lord, I just pray that you work in our lives to help us readily and quickly and joyfully obey this command to go to our brothers and sisters, to go to a husband or a wife or a brother or sister to deal with offenses and hurts and sins so that our families might glorify and honor you so that our church might glorify and honor you lord god that our our love might be deepened and strengthened and made more profound than just the here and now oh god i just pray that you would help us to exalt you by obeying these words and applying these to our lives individually and also collectively as a church give us courage give us joy and just the willingness and readiness to obey your word.